Welcome to episode number 40 of Off the Shelf. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. And in the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet, between the black skies and my red eyes, I can barely see. When I realize I've been sold out by my friends and my family, I can feel the rain. Hi, my name is Rod Bergen, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Off the Shelf podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to ask questions and to help you, our listener, find the answers to those questions. We want you to know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Off the Shelf is primarily directed at followers of the message of William Branham and former followers like ourselves. Off the Shelf is now being heard in over 100 countries, and we are glad you could join us. In this edition of Off the Shelf, we are continuing our interview with Paul and Kathy Jenkins. Welcome back, Paul and Kathy. Good to be back. Yes, thank you for having us. So in our last podcast, we asked you for a description of your experience in coming out of the message, and we just started getting into that. And what started the process? Were there any specific things that created problems for you that you just couldn't ignore? And I think, Paul, you had said that Kathy really started questioning some things and and that kind of started the ball rolling, although you had questions of your own. Yeah, she definitely got got, uh, ahead of the curve there. Again, I I think I just had too much fear to be willing to look at it, where Kathy's always been a very, very honest with herself type person she just um she has no problem with that so she was uh much more willing to take a look and i think um i think some of the message issues affected her being a woman more directly than it did me a man so i think uh, that might have been you know i let her speak for herself on that yeah well um definitely there were some concerns that i had um the things William Branham said about women that were actually very vulgar and vicious, um, those had affected me since I was 10 years old. There's no way that, that something like that um, being said repeatedly about your gender um, cannot affect you as a little vulnerable girl, as a teenager, into womanhood, um, as a wife and mother. I heard all of these terrible things he said. And like I said, I, I listened to tapes all the time because I I felt like Brother Branham was my friend. I mean, he was like almost a confidant um, in, in a way that I felt like I could trust him completely. And so, you know, placing that trust in, in this person that I looked to um, at, with such respect and such admiration and such love that to hear those kind of terrible things spoken about my gender. I was very vulnerable to that because I couldn't understand how God could have such a terrible, 
terrible view of women. So I did what a lot of other women and girls in the message do is I said, well, he's not talking about me because because I'm bride. You know, he's just talking about every other woman in the world, but but not me. So, you know, I would try to to shield myself from some of the pain. But to be real honest with you, it didn't work. It still it still had an impact on me. It, it was very, very um, hard on my self-esteem, on my my view of myself as as a as a female, as a woman. So um, those things did affect me um, very deeply. And the other thing, like Paul said, the fruit that we saw, especially from the ministers, that was very troubling to me. And, and it had been for years. And, and in the circle we were in, of course, a lot of people talked to, to Brother Lonnie. And, you know, there were things that we would discuss as a family. So we, we did, you know, we were aware of many, many very serious issues that were going on um, amongst the ministry. And so that was a concern to me. And the other thing was, especially as my children became teenagers, we had the youth at our house for about 10 years. We would let them come hang out. It wasn't always a preaching service. It was more, uh, we love you. Come as you are. You can talk about anything. We accept you. And I realized that the message was very, very hard on the youth in in the fact that it, it did not give them a clear path to the foot of the cross. Everything hinged upon William Branham and what you believed about him, your viewpoint of him, whether you could follow the rules that he placed out there, you know, to to make sure we had the token on our home and and whether you had his special revelations. All of those things were priority. And the kids weren't allowed just to be kids going through kid problems and, you know, wrestling with life's questions and life's issues. And there were no apologetics. And that was that was something that always concerned me. So those were the three concerns I had before I left the message. What what was the first thing that started you to question maybe it's not right? Well, to be quite honest, when I walked away, I actually knew very little about all the things that were wrong with it. But what I did know is that it was a life or death choice for me. I honestly felt like I could not survive the oppression of the message for one moment longer. Um, now, I had been aware of a few things, you know, that um, when when BTS, Believe the Sign, posted their Humble Pie article, of course, it was a big deal. So everybody was running to, <laughs> to read what they said. And, and of course, I looked into it and and I remember asking again, my father-in-law, I asked him about the bridge and I said, dad, you know, this never happened. This, this, this bridge vision never happened. 16 men did not fall into the river and drowned. And I said, what do you say about that? And he said, what do you say? And I, again, I accepted that. I thought, well, I guess there's not a whole lot to say. It just, it just didn't happen. But for me, it was, um, I literally, we were on, on our way back from the Carolinas, and I told Paul, I was almost beside myself. I was just sobbing hysterically. I, I actually made myself sick. I was crying so hard. I just told Paul, I said, there's something wrong with this. I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong. It's, it's not the spirit of Christ. And I said, it's, there, there can't be this much oppression in, in Jesus Christ. I said, there just can't be. And I was just so distraught. 
also at that time, I would like to say that is exactly when God um, had you, Rod, to to reach out and connect with me and and start talking to me about um, pointing me back to my Bible, pointing me to the Word of God, and answering my questions. I had so many questions, and God had you there exactly at, I mean, critical mass point, a crucial point in my life when I needed someone to be there to answer these very important questions that no one else would answer. Nobody, nobody would, would even go there because, you know, that's forbidden territory to question the message or to, you know, to have questions about it. So I just want to thank you for, you know, there's no words to thank you for that. God had you there and to thank you for, for reaching out to me at that time. That was just. For me, that's, that's what being a Christian is about. It's helping others. Yes. And I mean, it's really interesting what you're saying, because from what I've seen, my son Jeremy asked me at one point in time, he said, how long is the message going to go on? I, I said, I don't know, it's going to go on for a long time. But what I think will happen, this was right after uh, Jeremy wrote the Humble Pie article. So what I think is going to happen, based on what I understand from psychology, and I know that's a bad word from <laughs> from the perspective of message believers, mm -hmm. but but there's this concept of cognitive dissonance. And it's there was a guy by the name of Leon Festinger who wrote a book called When Prophecy Fails. It's an astounding title for a book. He wrote it in 1956. And he actually says that people who are in groups that have very fervent beliefs about something, if those beliefs are proved to be incorrect, so now listen, this is an astounding statement. If those beliefs are proved to be incorrect, they will become a more fervent believer if five conditions are present. And all of those five conditions are present in the message. So at that time, I told a number of people that the message was going to become more and more cultic. And the reason it was was because of the way psychology works. Exactly. You're confronted with this evidence that what you're believing is wrong. And then if you have this support group around you, which you do in, the, in, in these message churches, and you can actually read about cognitive dissonance on the Believe the Sign website. So I won't go into the details, but, but the belief becomes more fervent. And so what I told people is as the message becomes more cultic, the people inside it who are actually Christians are going to stand up and go, hold it. What's going on? Something's wrong. And that's going to cause them to come out. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, and so that's what it sounds like happened to you. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And the more, even just in the three years since we've left, we have heard um, testimonies of ministers holding up their Bible and saying that other Christians use this. And then laying that down and holding up a message book and saying, but we use this, the bride uses this. And I thought that is actually publicly, um, you know, degrading your the word of God, which is the Bible. And and so I, I was going to say earlier that um, after this breakdown I had, you know, I did start looking because, um, I mean, it was just emotionally I was distraught because. I just knew I couldn't, I couldn't survive under the oppression that was there. I literally was just beside myself. But 
When I started researching into, and, and I, I went to Believe the Sign, uh, Seek the Truth, Searching for Vindication, Mer Morning Mercy, all of these wonderful resources that I started looking into, people who were willing to stand on the front line and take bullets from, from all of their friends and loved ones and, and their calm, you know, the, the people they, that they've known for years and years, their comrades, they were willing to stand there and take bullets from, from these people that they loved in order to share the truth and to speak the truth. And so that to me is absolutely amazing because the truth is the most important thing to me in the world. The truth is the most important yes, thing. Absolutely. I agree with you. And so when I started looking into this and I started um, realizing uh, the one of the first things that really got to me was that William Branham had lied about his entire life story because this was Brother Branham. I mean, this was my special person that I looked to and believed in. And his life story, I had cried so many tears over that life story. I had connected with him through his pain and his loss and 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 I I sympathized with the the lost little boy and the and the struggling you know adult and and the loss he went through all these things that he had to go through in order to become the man of God that that he was you know to us that God had put him through all this so that he could be this great messenger you know for the bride and so when I started realizing that his birthday was you know was a lie that 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 was I, I actually. When I started looking up the actual documents on uh, Searching for Vindication and realized that his little brother was born in January of 1909, that there's no way he was born um, April 1909, the, the date the astrologer mentioned. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that is just a, an outright lie. It's not an exaggeration. It's a lie. And then the age of his parents, the age, you know, he was when his father died. Um, he was actually an adult with two children. Um, his story about hope asking for hope's hand in marriage that one really got to me her, her parents were divorced didn't even live in the same city yeah. and I was like oh that story I loved that story about the calluses in his hands and and how the whole thing the way her father spoke to him and I just love that story and then and then of course I cried agony over his wife and dying or child wife and child dying because the, because of the fact that he wouldn't go with the Pentecostal people and then to find out that he was actually a Pentecostal preacher for several years. And I would just like to say, you know, people say when they're talking to us, sometimes the message believers, they will they will say, oh, you never believed it. Um, you, you couldn't live it or something like that. And that is the most naive statement I think a person could possibly make. If we didn't love this, we would not have believed it and clung to it and lived it for 40 years. 43 years, wow. it was yeah. myself. There is no way I would have given my life to that and, and raised my children in it and defended it at all cost. I really believed it with all of my heart and loved it. And so, and it wasn't a matter of not being able to live it. I did live it. And so, but when I realized that, that he had lied about his entire life story, I was devastated. I felt like I had lost a friend. I, I curled up in my bed in the fetal position for the better part of two weeks in a dark room, and I cried tears of agony. I had to grieve the loss of my friend, Brother Branham, the man that, that I had thought he was, because I realized that everything he had said was not true. None of it was true. 
so that was that was kind of the beginning of of me leaving is I was realizing that he wasn't who he claimed to be. Yeah, our process was a lot more gradual in that we were actually finding this stuff out on a week by week basis. Right. And I would phone up one of my boys or one of the boys would phone up me and just like, Dad, look what we just found. It's like, what? That can't be. And as you went through these things and started finding out these things, it was, I mean, initially it was just absolute disbelief. Yes. And as, Mm -hmm. uh, as Jeremy, my son, told me, he said, you know, Dad, five years ago I had no problems on my problem shelf. But now, he said, my problem shelf is so full, I guess I, the problems are falling off. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm done. Yep. I'm done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, Paul, how is, g- give me your reaction while you're going through this, while, while, while Kathy's going through this. Well, um, as I said, Kathy was kind of the, uh, the start of the whole thing. Um, I remember sitting with Kathy in a restaurant on that same trip where she decided she could do it no longer. We were sitting in a restaurant and we'd just gone through the Biltmore. So we were there in, in Asheville and um, we were sitting in a restaurant and she started telling me some of the things that she'd been reading on BTS. And um, I just, I said, I sat there in awe, just that can't be true. How can that possibly be true? And the thing, the thing, excuse me, the thing that got me, my keystone, when that stone was removed, my wall crumbled, was the cloud. Um, When I realized that he lied about that, and it wasn't an exaggeration, he flat out fabricated the entire story, that was the beginning of the end for me. Uh, I thought, if he'd do that, you know, because that's a vindication, that's something that he claimed was a visitation from God that told him to go preach the seven seals and yada, yada, yada. And if he's willing to lie about that, all of a sudden, this man that I held in great esteem, that I would hang my life on every word that he spoke, that that was removed. Now I'm, I had the freedom to look at everything that he said objectively, and that was the beginning of the end. Because once I started doing that, everything began to unravel quite rapidly. I, we came back from that trip. I told Jeff, you know, I went over with Jeff and I was telling Jeff some of the things that, that I was seeing. He said, yeah, did you know this? And he'd tell me something he'd been seeing because he'd been seeing some of the stuff years before. But I think because of his position or whatever, he was unwilling to cross that bridge um, at the time. So I would share stuff with him and he'd share stuff with me. And I was pretty well in my mind. I was done with the message. And I'd mentioned to Jeff, Jeff, I'm done. I can't. I, William Branham can't be who he said he was. He's there's just too much error in this. You know, you can have some truth and a lie, but you cannot have any lie in the truth. And so I thought to myself, the message cannot be truth. There's too much lie in it, too much falsehoods in it. And so uh, Jeff said, you know, well, I'm seeing the same thing. He said, I want to try to turn the church. And uh, and he said, I, I said, would you stay with me to help try turn the church? I said, yeah, I'll stay here for a while. Well, I stayed for about a, maybe a month, month and a half longer, and I thought, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't sit in another message service. I can't. I just can't do it, you know, because the process was going to be too long and arduous, and I couldn't. I couldn't do it. So I, you know, made the decision to leave. Well, once I did that, then I started. At the first, I would say, well, I don't believe any of the message, but I still believe serpent seed. Well, then I read Genesis 4:1. Well, that dissolved serpent seed. 
and, and I, I don't, I believe all, I don't believe any of the message, but I still believe X, Y, or, you know, and I, one by one, I'd see scriptures that would just totally unravel the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And finally, I got to the place mm-hmm. where I just took everything message and I chucked it. And I said, I'm just going to take my Bible. I'm going to start reading my Bible. And I, for, for the first time in 40 years of Christianity, I had the liberty to read my Bible for just what it says and take it for what it says. And it's, the message isn't, it's not, it's nowhere in there. There's nothing no. message related within the pages of the scriptures at all. And so uh, for me, it was just, I mean, once I was free enough to remove Branham from the absolute and just take my Bible for what it says, I was done. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because when you look at what we believed and then you take your glasses off and look at scripture i mean one of the first questions people ask is well if william branham isn't the prophet then who is and this goes right to the heart of of the core teaching of the message exactly is that they don't understand the role of the holy spirit and that the holy spirit is to lead us and guide us that's the reason he's here on this earth and when I, I remember reading the passage where Jesus talks about John the Baptist and he says that until that point in time, no one greater than John the Baptist had ever lived. So John the Baptist, you take him and you take all the greatest people in the Old Testament, whether it's Moses or Joseph or Isaiah or Elijah, and John the Baptist, nobody's greater than him. So he's at least their equal. But he said, in the kingdom of heaven, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So why do we need Elijah the prophet? So my response to people now when they say, well, if you're not following William Branham, who are you following? I don't need to follow anyone. Exactly. Well, the whole premise of that question, if Branham's not the man who is, is based on the premise of message teaching that there's supposed to be Elijah to come when there's not. Exactly. So exactly. so the question, I mean, it's so difficult to interact with message people because everything, every scripture that you want to use that proves the message wrong is the same scripture they're going to use to prove it right because they're looking at it through the eyes of the message. And so because you don't have the same absolutes, it's difficult to debate scripture with them because... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They take a scripture, they take Malachi 4, and they say that it's split in two different times, and John fulfilled part of it, and Branham fulfilled the second part. When when the angel came to Zacharias and told him that John was going to fulfill that scripture, I'm paraphrasing, Yeah, he didn't split it up. It's mm-hmm. one fell mm-hmm. swoop. It all happened right here and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, but they don't see it that way, so you can't, you can't use Bible to prove them wrong because well that's just the way you see it mm-hmm. no that's what the bible says it's it's black and white you know uh it just it makes no sense to me i take the entire you know brother brown's entire life story you know kathy was talking about that earlier i liken that to a man who wrote a resume trying to get the office of a prophet so he put together a resume with all of his qualifications all of his vindications all of the things that happened and and we read that resume, the life story, and we gave the man his esteemed position as prophet. Well, when you start, if an, a, any good employer, when he receives a resume from somebody that's seeking a, a position, 
they check the qualifications. They check the ver they verify that the resume is true. Well, we never did that. And so once I verified this man's resume and I realized that it's 100% bogus, it's not hard to take away that position. Question I'd really like to kind of focus on because you've alluded to a, 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 this issue a little bit is what does it mean to really follow Jesus? As a true follower of Christ, what does that mean to you now? Well, my view of following Jesus is taking, um, one, taking scriptures uh, as, they, as they're written and not processing them through the teachings of another source. So I'm, if I read something in the Bible, I take it for what it says, and I, I just accept it as it is. And then I also look at the life and character of Jesus. If I'm going to follow, if I'm going to emanate anything, I'm going to emanate a man who is willing to come, live, move amongst his brothers, die a sacrificial death, pay the price for my sins. That's that's what it is to follow Jesus. It's to live a life of sacrifice. And I think you have personified this, Rod, in, in the effort that you've put forth to bring the truths about the message and make them public. And we've, you know, in our little small ways, we've tried to jump into that bandwagon and be as helpful as we can anywhere we can to interact. But that being said, following Jesus is living a life of service to mankind because that's what he did. He, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. A, those are his words. People, it's really funny because people think that I'm, I'm looking for followers, which is... <laughs> <laughs> it's really laughable. I mean, yeah, I am not laughable. looking for followers. No. I am myself a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, along with my wife and children, came to the realization that what we were believing and what we had been taught was wrong. Right. And so we, I, I've got a responsibility to tell people the truth. Yes. And... I mean, it's really interesting as it was one of the most profound things I found. I just spent the last week in, in London, England. I was at a conference of, of people from all over the world, literally, and the worship and the people that were there, the, the giving nature of these people is, I mean, it, it profoundly affected me five years ago when I went there and I was there again uh, five years later in this conference in London, and it was, the, the, the effect on me has been profound when I see the love of Christ lived out through people. And, you know, message people point at churches and they say, well, you know, churches are all, you know, the, the denominational churches, quote, unquote, are all lukewarm. You know, back when Paul was around, there were legalistic churches like the message. The Galatians church was legalistic. Yep. There were liberal churches where People were getting drunk in church. They were getting drunk in church. Paul talks mm -hmm. about that in 1 Corinthians 11, 21. There were lukewarm churches like Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14. But there were good churches like in Ephesus. And there were great leaders like Timothy and Titus. Right. And what I've found is that when you look, look around for a good church, you know, there's a lot of lukewarm churches, but boy, have I found some good people in some good churches. And the teaching has astounded me. It has been so liberating and so amazing to realize, you know, there's a funny saying that we used to, that people would say in the, in the message that, you know, our kids 
could twist a theologian in knots. Well, I'm convinced that no message preacher has ever actually met a real spiritual theologian because honestly, the understanding that some of these people have of the scripture and the love they have in their heart for, for the word of God and for Christ yep. is astounding. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, we have we have leaving the message. Um, all the things that William Branham said about denominations, um, Paul and I have visited many churches in our area. We've been involved with a couple of different churches, and, and it has been absolutely um, wonderful to be around these Christians with filled with the Holy Spirit, and their whole entire focus is on Jesus Christ. Everything William Branham said about these denominations, it, it wasn't true. And most of what he said could actually be applied to his own movement, yeah. where they're the only ones who think they're saved. They're the only ones who think they're right. That that goes for message, message churches. And even amongst the message churches themselves, some of them, um, you know, they criticize and condemn each other, even in the movement itself. Whereas in our church, our pastor works with all different denominations in the city to bring souls to Jesus Christ. And that is just, and to reach out to the needy. And that has just been the most beautiful experience for me. Yeah. And I, I, I just want to say this to our listeners. And there may be somebody listening right now who is confronted with doubt. And the thing that I want to say to them is Jesus will never leave you. Right. Regardless of what you've heard in the message, if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit has promised to lead you. The job of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus real. Yeah. And there are churches where that is happening, and I visited a number of them. Uh, I, I was in a church recently in London, Ontario, and the church is vibrant, it's alive. It's wonderful to see a church where the Holy Spirit is making Jesus real to the people. Yeah. And you just people just need to get out message followers need to get out of where they are and look around and actually take their message glasses off and look at what a real church looks like yeah. and there are churches around where the worship is amazing people study the word of god there's intimate fellowship and there's 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 community there's aggressive outreach and evangelism yeah um, yes I, I i met a i was at this conference uh this past week where this church has now been responsible for presenting the gospel to almost 30 million people wow wow people are people are being converted yes and People are falling in love with Jesus Christ and they're becoming followers. And not only that, they're impacting the society around them. Yes. They're, they're, they're reaching out and they're filled with love for the people around them. And the, the, the impact is to, is to come to a realization that God is real and that God is just and he's merciful. And when the compassion and the love of God is ministered by the church, to people in society, it's astounding what the impact that have on, has on people's lives. Yeah, yes, and they're getting people to Jesus Christ, to the Savior. They're not just getting them to come into an elitist movement that focuses on a man, or they are taking people, they're leading them to Jesus Christ. 
and he's changing their lives. And that is so beautiful to me. I just, I've used the term beautiful Christianity so many times since I've left the message. And, and it is so beautiful to me. And the churches are so much more community minded than the message churches were. You know, I think of BCF, you know, when I was there, we would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, if not maybe even close to millions of to spread the message. Not a single penny to spread the gospel yeah. and not a single penny to the local community, nothing to the local community. And yet the churches that we're attending now, they're active with the community. They've got outreach programs for the needy. They've got they're doing like, like what James says. You know, he said, show me your faith by your works. And the works that James was talking about was reaching out to the poor, taking care of the widow, taking that's care right. of those that need. That's that's Christianity fleshed out. That's the absolutely correct. Don't flesh out Christianity. They're spending all their efforts to pull people from good, solid, godly churches into a movement that that'll stifle their walk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, Paul and Kathy, for spending this time with us and sharing your testimony with our listeners. And I want to say thank you very much. Yes. Thank you for Glad having us. It. It's yeah. our privilege. So to our listeners, if you'd like to send us an email, there's a link on the offtheshelf.life website where you can email me directly at rod at offtheshelf.life or you can reach Brian at brian with a y at offtheshelf.life. The Off The Shelf website also contains a comment section after each podcast. We'd love to hear if you've got a question. Just click on the title of the podcast. It'll take you to the page for that specific podcast. The comment section is at the bottom of the page. And if you've got a question, we'll try to answer it. Thanks very much for listening and have a great week, everyone. When the test comes in and the doctor says I've only got a few months left It's like a bitter pill I'm swallowing I can barely take a breath and when addiction steals my baby girl and there's nothing I can do My only hope is to trust you I trust you, Lord In the eye of the storm You remain in control